my name is Dr. Edwin Cruz and you're listening to the Bridge Builders podcast. In this episode, we discuss Chinese medicine and whether it's possible for healthcare professionals to integrate 2,000-year-old wisdom with modern evidence-based practices. My guest is Dr. Carolyn E., GP and researcher. Carolyn completed a master's and PhD on acupuncture and is the current chair of the RSCGP Integrative Medicine Specific Interest Group. Welcome to the Bridge Builders podcast, Carolyn. Thanks, Ed. Really happy to be online. So, Carolyn, you're a GP and researcher, and I understand you're one of the first practicing medical doctors in Australia to gain dual qualifications in Chinese medicine. When did you become interested in Chinese medicine? That's a really good question. Actually, from the time I was a medical student, so I was considering an elective uh, as a fifth year uh, going to China and uh, studying Chinese medicine at that time. That didn't happen, but um, after going through you know, the first three years of being an intern and then a JMO, I came out of that a little bit bruised and battered. I'd seen you know, a lot of people very ill, um, dying, um, and often from things that we did to them, and uh, I really, at that point, wanted to find a different way of being able to help my patients. And so I, I was uh, only three years out and decided to study Chinese medicine at a bachelor level as well. So I really wanted to get right into, I guess, the, the history of it, the philosophy of it, uh, and not just do a couple of weekend courses. That wasn't really going to satisfy my interest in it. So that's how it began. So so what is it that attracts you in Chinese medicine? I think it offers a different way of viewing health and I found that to be really complementary in my practice. And the thing that attracted me the most was that the Chinese way of viewing health really takes into account what they call the root causes of disease. Uh, so, and these are things that we're really familiar with now. So it's uh, your diet, so the quality of your diet, uh, how much exercise you do. Uh, another really fascinating concept is this concept of overwork, which in the old days was probably more physical overwork, but um, in our modern context, I think it relates to burnout and I see a lot of that in my general practice and the, you know, the, we're learning more and more about the physical effects of burnout. And, um, and I often try and put this together in a, a bit of a package for my patients. And if I offer them another way of uh, thinking about burnout and, and how it might affect our overall um, health and well-being, I find that it, for certain people who understand Chinese philosophy or are interested in it, um, this really resonates with them and they do then start taking steps and, you know, recognising how important it is to look after their health. So are you saying that it's the lifestyle factors or the, the emphasis on lifestyle that is your main focus when you integrate Chinese medicine into your daily practice? It's a very big focus now. Um, because it helps me explain to the patient how lifestyle is impacting on their health. Another really interesting thing about Chinese medicine is the focus on 
the impact of extreme emotions on your on your health and well-being. So these emotions might be um, extreme sadness or grief, um, and particularly anger. So anger, irritability, tension uh, is a very is seen as a very big pathogenic factor in Chinese medicine and can then lead to a lot of physical illnesses. Uh, and I think now we, we're understanding that that, that is actually the case, um, that you know, stress and ongoing tension um, can have a lot of impacts on, on our health. So what is the, the add-on with regards to practicing Chinese medicine as opposed to Western medicine? Because you could argue that, you know, things like burnout, stress uh, yeah. are, are quite prominent in, in medical training. And uh, I think Western yeah. doctors are quite yeah. focused on that. So, they are, so what, is the yeah. added, what is the added benefit of Chinese medicine? Yeah. So they, I think for me, there's two added benefits. So one is that if I offer my patients a, an additional way, it's like triangulating the, the way that you're thinking about health, you know, because we often we, we say to them, look, I think this is because you're stressed. And sometimes they don't buy it. I don't know why. Um, but there's a bit of resistance to saying, well, you can't just put it down to stress. But then if I bring in a, a different way of thinking about health, they for certain patients, they are more likely to take it on. So that's one um, added benefit. I think the other added benefit is that I've got an additional tool in my toolbox in terms of uh, therapy. So I've got acupuncture, which uh, has good evidence for chronic pain in particular. Uh, other uh, other conditions that can help with include migraines, so really good sham controlled evidence there. So it, it offers my patients uh, I guess another, you know, a non-pharmacological approach um, to managing some of these symptoms. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Um, I, I like that aspect of having another tool in your toolbox. Yeah. I guess what a lot of doctors, Western trained doctors, wonder is how do you combine the wisdom and the traditions of a 2,000-year-old Chinese medicine tradition with modern evidence-based practice? Yeah, and, and that's what I'm trying to do in my own research career. So I'm a full-time research fellow now, and I did a PhD on acupuncture for menopausal hot flushes. Uh, so that was a sham-controlled trial. It was very large. It was um, over 300 women. And I went into research because I saw the gap there that, well, we've, we, you know, we've got a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, and the evidence certainly was building in, in uh, for therapies like acupuncture but you know they really needed to be a lot more um, and really good quality evidence there so that patients and doctors can make informed decisions um, so that's what I'm doing now so next year uh, I'm doing a little bit of work on uh, the potential role of acupuncture for weight loss in women with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome uh, and the, the I guess the combination of the the ancient I guess knowledge uh, with new ideas is quite interesting so in in this case we're looking at it as um, acupuncture possibly having uh, a, a positive effect on uh, reducing sympathetic tone which then might have a knock-on effect on improving insulin resistance and weight in our women uh, who are obese and overweight with PCOS. And there's also some early evidence, and some of it was Australian, actually, an Australian uh, randomised control trial that showed that um, ear acupuncture could suppress the appetite. So that might be an additional way of um, helping women manage weight uh, 
if they are struggling with this with PCOS. That's really interesting. Your PhD topic was it was Chinese acupuncture in women with menopausal hot flushes. Can you just very briefly outline the, the results? Yes, so we had two groups and uh, one group received uh, obviously the real acupuncture, another group received sham acupuncture and we did this by using a blunt needle and it was uh, very clever if you twisted uh, the handle of the needle it looked as though the needle had gone into the skin so it kind of shortened had a telescopic mechanism so that's the that's the sham acupuncture isn't it the sham needle yeah 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 um i guess one problem with sham acupuncture is that it it's still got a lot of sensation so the patient has to believe that a needle's gone through the skin and so they need to have you know feel this sort of needle prick sensation and you know I've actually tested on myself and it is quite intense um, so it's not a placebo but it's I guess supposed to be a less active form of acupuncture we found that um, both groups improved to a similar degree so the hot flushes reduced by uh, 40% uh, for the composite score of frequency and severity. That was a good outcome for both groups, but unfortunately no difference between groups. And what was the response? Yeah, look, I, I did get some hate mail, uh, you know, that acupuncturists uh, were very upset by what I had done and they try and pick apart your you know the, the way you had done it and they said oh look at the treatment wasn't really as we would have done it and so on um so the the response wasn't great uh from the you know the acupuncture profession um but i think it was still a, a really important piece of work to do and i did that piece of research because I needed to know if it was uh, more of, I guess, the non-specific effects of acupuncture um, because I had tried it on a few patients in clinic with severe hot flushes and it had worked. And when you see those sort of findings as a, as a you know, someone trained in biomedicine, you, you do need to know um, beyond the anecdotal. A while back you... You published a post about Western versus Chinese medicine on the Bridge Builders blog, and you wrote that there is increasingly scepticism amongst doctors about the value of complementary treatments. And you said that trying to build a bridge can sometimes feel impossible. I must admit that I've been a skeptic too, but in the article, you reminded us that uh, I think more than 50% of patients do not disclose use of complementary therapies to their doctors, which tells a story in itself. And it made me think that there's probably room for improvement in our approach towards non-Western therapies. What are your thoughts? Definitely. That, I think that's my number one passion, to have um, greater disclosure. Uh, I really want patients to be coming to their GPs to talk about uh, the use of complementary treatments and to uh, to make you know to go through that process of shared decision making, but it's just not happening, um, and it's consistently that more than half of patients um, aren't telling us. And uh, recently, we ran some focus groups, and and they told us why. Um, so they you know they the patients who are using complementary therapies 
are saying that I, I don't tell my GP because they don't care or they think it's stupid or they think it's rubbish or they'll judge me or, um, you know, they'll roll their eyes um, or sometimes they just don't want to know. Sometimes it's also because the GPs don't know what to do with that information. It's just too much. Um, you know, we're very busy um, to have to sort of look through side effects of supplements uh, during a busy consultation. It's, it's very, very time-consuming and often GPs don't know where to go to get credible information so um, I hope that you know with the work that I'm doing as well um, in integrative medicine research that we can um, we can change that that we can uh, offer GPs a little bit more awareness about where to go for credible information um, and also uh, hopefully change attitudes to a little bit more openness to find out why patients are using complementary treatment. So they're using it obviously to fill a gap that we haven't been able to help them with. Unfortunately, they're often getting um, the information from the wrong sources. Uh, and if we can give these good resources to GPs and build confidence in patients to come and talk to their GPs, I think it would be overall a much better outcome for everyone. That's a really good point. In, your, in that blog post, you also said, imagine what we could achieve if we work together instead of having our patients use two parallel healthcare systems. So for those listeners who want to provide more holistic patient care, or at least want to be able to discuss it more openly with their patients, how do you suggest we integrate those two worlds? Yeah, well, look, I think um, just give you a bit, a bit of background. The you know complementary therapies are starting to understand the uh, the need and the value of communicating with GPs and communicating in a respectful way as well. So I'm involved in a project with uh, the Australian Integrative Medicine Association, which is all about teaching and training complementary therapists to write uh, good interprofessional letters, you know, that, that's got the relevant information that's respectful um, and opens up that dialogue. I would encourage GPs, if they do start receiving these letters, um, to write back or pick up the phone and call um, because this this practitioner that's written to you um, is obviously a very engaged uh, practitioner who wants to work together with biomedicine instead of in this parallel system. So that's one thing GPs can do. I think another thing is... Um, is to ask patients as well. So often patients don't tell us because we don't ask. So sometimes they think it's not relevant that I'm taking this supplement. It's, you know, it's natural. It's over the counter. It's not going to be a problem. Um, so if we ask patients every now and then, you know, look, you've, you've had this, you know, you've had this pain for a while. Can I ask, you know, are you taking any, any herbal uh, medications? Are you taking any supplements, anything over the counter? Are you seeing any practitioners? If we ask, then it tells them that we are open to discussing this. And then uh, when they say, look, I'm seeing such and such or taking this and this, and you, we can have that openness and say, okay, that's that sounds interesting. Would you like us to look at, you know, the risks and benefits of this together? So, Carolyn, what happens when we don't build bridges, are we endangering our patients by failing to provide integrated solutions? In my mind, yes, I think so. Um, I don't think that having the two parallel health systems is, um, you know, results in the best outcomes for our patients because uh, if, if we don't know what they're accessing and if, if we're not able to 
talk to them about the appropriateness of that or or make help them make that informed decision then they might be exposing themselves to some risk and some of this risk is financial risk as well uh, so you know you have spending a lot of money on, on supplements that aren't going to help them at all um, or spending a lot of money on therapies that may not help them we always have to build in patient preference and into this but you know if they make an informed decision then that's great but i get the feeling that at the moment the the decisions that they're making uh, they're not making with the, the best available information um, another concern I guess is of things like uh, interactions with uh, existing medications so that's more of an issue obviously for patients who are on multiple medications there's also the risk that they I guess uh, not receiving the best medical advice uh, or they might go to a practitioner for a medical problem that they and failing to come to us first to to get a diagnosis because they they're feeling that look maybe I'm I'm getting more answers from this person I'm just going to see them first about various conditions and if there's no sort of red flag process going on so for example if someone goes to some to a practitioner with constipation uh, so change in bowel habit and that practitioner isn't aware that change in bowel habit might indicate something more sinister then we've lost that opportunity I think to you know to provide what we do really well which is the providing that safety aspect. Can you recommend some resources for doctors to look up Chinese medicines? Absolutely. So there are a few resources that you have to subscribe to. Uh, there's one called Natural Medicines. It's only about ninety dollars a year, um, and I, you know, you can share the uh, the login between GPs. So I'd recommend that one because uh, it is updated by pharmacists. Uh, there's a free resource on the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre website called About Herbs. Um, it's a little bit hard to navigate to, but um, but it is there, and that's a free resource. It's got a lot of great information on not just herbs, but also um, therapies like um, chiropractic, acupuncture, and yoga. So it will have a section for health professionals that tells us, you know, what the state of the evidence is on uh, efficacy or effectiveness, uh, what the sort of warnings might be for particular patient groups, what the adverse events might be as well. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Well, I think it's to encourage all colleagues to have a little bit more openness, to not, I guess, have a, a blanket view that all complementary treatments uh, um, rubbish, I guess, for one of a better word. Go and look up the evidence. Um, you know, if someone comes in, often I am surprised if they come in and say, I'm on this supplement for this condition. I'll go, oh, well, I can't imagine that would actually be very useful. If I actually take the time to look it up, um, often I'm surprised and I'll go, well, there is actually you know, some evidence or a lot of evidence um, that supports the use of this. So I think, you know, the, the more we have that curiosity, uh, because, you know, there's so much evidence coming out all the time, it's it's impossible to keep track of it all. Um, just go look it up and you might be surprised. We might share those resources in the podcast notes. That would be great. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you, Karen. Thanks so much, Edwin, for this opportunity. For more information about Bridge Builders, our blog, or this podcast, please visit bridgebuilders.vision.